835 in your pew Bible, Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to begin by asking you if you've ever heard of ligers and tigans. Have you ever heard of ligers and tigans? If you haven't, a liger, this is true, is what you get when you have a male lion mate with a female tiger. This is legit. A tigan is when you get a male tiger that breeds with a female lion. They're called hybrid animals. There's a lot of them. But there's another one, and I know you've heard of this one. It's called a mule. And you get a mule when you have a male donkey breed with a female horse. That produces a mule. Now, that's really interesting, right? So far, this is a winner of a sermon. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit more about mules, so enjoy the information. They're athletic like a horse. They're intelligent like a donkey. Pound for pound, they are stronger even than horses. They work hard. Around the world, they still are used to pull plows, to pull wagons, to transport people. Mules are great animals, but they have a fatal flaw. Every single mule is the end of the lion, the line rather. They cannot reproduce. Did you know that about mules? Probably did. Mules cannot reproduce. You see, you have a horse that has 64 chromosomes. You got a donkey that's got 62 chromosomes. A mule is born with 63. And an animal can't reproduce with an odd number of chromosomes. They're sterile. Now, oddly enough, all of that information, you're writing, you know, that was just, you know, National Geographic for five minutes. Really fun, at least to me. Bring all that information back to our church, ready? If you call Cornerstone your home, even if you come sporadically, which I would like to encourage you to stop doing that and come faithfully and regularly, but let's get back to Cornerstone here for all of us. It's going to produce a question. All that stuff I just told you about mules. Here's my question. Are we a church full of mules? We've got a lot of hardworking people here. You know, the old 80-20 adage doesn't apply to Cornerstone. You know, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Statistically, we're not even close to that. It's a far better picture. So we're a hardworking group of men and women and kids. We've got people serving in all kinds of ministries, but I'm really asking this question. Ready? Are we obeying our Lord and Savior by making disciples of Jesus Christ? Now, that's going to pull you up short, and I'm going to ask you a couple variations on that question. You ready? When's the last time that you shared the good news of the gospel with an unsaved person? Now, if that's a little convicting, that's all right. That's okay. That's the Spirit of God with his scalpel doing a little work in your heart. When's the last time that you have shared your faith in Jesus Christ and how to be saved with somebody that's not a Christian? Let me vary it a little bit. We're still talking about making disciples. When's the last time that you identified somebody that is a Christian and you came along beside them and committed to a process of helping them grow in their faith? Have you ever done that? 
Do you know the majority of Christians in the church have never had somebody personally come along them to help them grow in the faith, which is why most people in the church have no idea how to do that with anybody else, yet this is what we are told to do. Here's my final variation on that question. Actually, I think it's the most convicting one. When your life is over on earth, now are you listening to this? I really want you to answer this question. Privately, it's just between you and God, not between you and I. When your life is over on this earth, will you have produced any spiritual offspring? This whole message is about that. It's a catalyst to get us moving. We're in a sermon series that's looking at the purpose that Cornerstone Church has. We exist, you've heard it, we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, grow together, and serve others. So open your Bibles if you haven't done it already. Here we go, Matthew chapter 28. We are a Bible-preaching church. Every sermon you will ever hear is going to be rooted in the Word of God. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Well known from Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, let's break this down into four sections. This is going to make it a little bit easier. First, we've got our commander. We have our commander. Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, all authority. Now, you ready? You want a Greek lesson? Can everybody look at me for a second? I'm going to teach you the most ridiculously simple Greek lesson you will ever need to know. The New Testament is translated mostly from Greek. A little bit of Aramaic, here it is. The word all means all, and that's all that all means. Say it with me. The word all means all, and that's all that all means. Some of you don't want to understand Greek. What is your problem? Let's try it again. The word all means all, and that's all that all means. It's the Greek word pass. So here we go. All authority. All of it. There's not a little bit, not a little... A little tiny speck of authority that doesn't fall under this category, every bit of it, all authority in heaven. And just because, or just in case you might be thinking, well, yeah, I know it is in heaven, it belongs to Jesus, but man, there's a lot of things that happen on this earth that doesn't look like he's in authority over. Well, here's what Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, ready, Tim Ackley? Ooh, that would be disastrous. Fun for me, but disastrous. It's been all given to Jesus. But did you catch the wording Jesus used in heaven and on earth? It ought to bring back a little bit of Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaching us to pray says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy be your name, set apart, consecrated. Your kingdom come, your will be done, here we go, on earth as it is in heaven. So when we pray, here's the power of prayer, not to move God 
to our will, it's to get our wills to move to his will. That's the power of prayer. So God, we're praying, and as we're praying, we're asking that everything that you're willing in heaven, everything you're decreeing in heaven, everything you want to do in heaven, will be done on earth, and we're adjusting to that. So we want what you want, and we hate what you hate. That's the power of prayer. So what God wills, we are to pray is done or is implemented on earth as it is in heaven. So here we go with these, these, this phrase, on heaven and on earth. You get to Hebrews chapter 2, now in putting everything, the writer said, in subjection to Jesus, that means at his feet, under his will, he left nothing outside his control. Now, now listen, you really should underline this. You really ought to go over to Hebrews and find this verse in chapter 2, verse 8, and underline nothing outside his control. Because guess what? You're going to have a bad Monday or a terrible Tuesday, or you're going to have some time next week or in the next couple weeks where things go horribly different than what you want it to go like. And you got to come back to nothing outside his control. God is in control of everything, and he's given it all to Jesus. But there's a lot of sympathy and empathy and compassion in Hebrews 2.8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So you might be, even while I'm preaching and saying this, going, well, wait a minute, it didn't feel like that when I lost my job. It didn't feel like that when my my marriage broke up because right now you don't see everything in subjection to him but the bible's emphatic there is nothing outside of the control of jesus christ he has all authority in heaven and on earth you know what the kingdom of god is you know what the work of the kingdom of god is it is to bring to earth the reality of the rule and the authority of jesus that's what it is the kingdom of God is the rule and the authority of God seen on earth. It's not a location. This is not within these walls, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is much grander than that. It's much more beautiful than that. And it really is the reality of the rule and the authority of Christ coming and emerging into this earth. And Jesus has all authority, and he has commanded us. He has commissioned us. He's given us a job in his kingdom, and he doesn't really report to a heavenly board of directors. Have you ever sat on a board? Whether that's a board in the church, which is not always fun, let me tell you. It's not a glamorous position. Or a board at a company. Well, God doesn't need to reference or check in or report to a heavenly board of directors. He alone, Jesus, has the authority. And he is not sending us to conquer the world. He's already done it. Did you know Jesus conquered the world? He's already defeated it. It's not our job to defeat the world. He is the Lord of all. All means all, and that's all that all means. So all authority that's sitting in a presidential office, all authority sitting in a CEO position, all authority as a teacher in a classroom, listen, all of that has been given under Jesus. He is in authority over all of it. Now I'm going to make this super simple for you. 
you got your Bibles open, don't do this, by the way, if you're using a pew Bible, but I want you to write something in your own personal Bible or take a note in your, in your electronic Bible again. All authority, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it's the same thing as saying all power. That's really what that means. All power belongs to Jesus. And he's not asking Christians to make disciples and teach them. Listen, he's commanding them. That's why he's our commander. This is a command. And our commander has the right to do what he wants. And what he wants is seen in his command. And that's point number two. What is that command? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. This is his command. Now, you remember a minute ago I gave you a Greek lesson? Wasn't that fun? How many of you honestly feel a little bit more educated right now? That was a sneeze of emphasis. Thank you. Well, let me give you now a grammatical lesson. And this is just about equally as fun as the Greek one. I'm going to give you a brief grammatical statement, and then I'm going to explain it. It's honestly simple. Jesus gives us a command, and then he gives us three participles. Oh, that, no, that was a really bad word. Here, I'm going to make it e even easier. Or three ways that we are to carry out his command. So he gives us a command... And then he gives us three ways, which are Greek participles, for how to carry that command out. Here's the command, make disciples. Here's the three ways he wants us to do it. Go, baptizing, teaching. Now we're going to unpack all of that. But I want you to notice that Christ did not tell us to make converts. He didn't tell us to make Christians. He tells us to make disciples. That's his command. There's a world of difference there. If someone asked you to, to explain what a disciple is, could you definitely, clearly do that? How would you explain to somebody that really doesn't know what a disciple is, how could you explain what it really is? Well, I'm going to try to help you understand that. Normally, when you approach the word disciple at its most basic meaning, it's a student who is committed to learn from somebody else. A student who is committed to learn from somebody else. That's the most basic meaning of the word disciple. And normally, in the Bible, in the times of Jesus, a disciple would approach a rabbi. Actually, a student would approach a rabbi to apply to become his disciple. The word was Talmud. But Jesus chose his disciples. He, called, he totally went different than the rabbis of his day. Instead of allowing people to come to him to apply to become his disciples, he actually took the initiative and he went to the people that he wanted to be his disciples. And when you became a disciple of a rabbi that was the, the teacher, the one in authority, you would enter into a lifelong allegiance 
to that person. And you would have to choose that person over your own family, over your own property, over your own reputation. Now, are you getting that? When in first century discipleship, when you chose your disciple or that disciple, that rabbi rather, chose you, you had to be allegiant to that person for the rest of your life. And in time, that disciple would receive all of the learning of the rabbi, and now it's his turn to pass that learning on to his own disciples. That's how they made disciples in rabbinical Judaism. So a disciple of Jesus, I know this is getting really fun, a disciple of Jesus is one whom he has chosen, who responded to his invitation by trusting in him for salvation, and commits now for a life of learning and growth and allegiance and faithfulness and obedience. So Jesus commands all Christians to make disciples of all nations. Now I'm going back to the question I asked you a while ago. Have you ever made a disciple of Jesus? That is our command. By the way, do you know that that's your mission in life and that's my mission in life? And if somebody tells you they've got a different mission in life, they're now outside of the words of Jesus. That's our church's mission. That's Ebenezer Church's mission. That is Randy Nelson's church of mission. That is Calvary's church of mission. Listen, you just reword it differently. Tim Zuck, that's his church's mission. You can put it in any wording you want, but it's only one mission given to every Christ-believing church. And if a church invents a different mission they're no longer according to the word of god there is one mission it is to make disciples teach them jesus and make disciples of all nations a little bit of a corrective you ready that doesn't mean make disciples of all countries That's how a lot of people interpret it. That's not what it means. It means tribes, families, clans, or in what we call people groups. So this isn't just a command to make as many disciples as you can before you die. It's a command to specifically make disciples among every people group in the world. That's really what Jesus is saying. Now listen, I really want you to hold up your current understanding of Matthew 28's Great Commission, and now put over it what I'm teaching you. Is this the way that you understood it? That this is not about making as many disciples as you can. It's specifically going to all the people groups around the world and make disciples. And if those people groups are the ones around you then make disciples there if god's sending you to a different group then make disciples there you know according to the joshua project there are 16,543 people groups on earth and 6,701 of them have never heard or accepted that jesus christ came to offer salvation by dying for sinners they've never heard of it And Jesus tells us clearly, now this ought to be rather sobering, Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. It means all people groups, and then the end will come. He's not coming back until all the people groups, 16,000 
543 of them hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's our job to get that news out. Christian, a church of spiritual mules is not obedient to the only mission that Jesus ever gave us. And each of us urgently must make disciples of all nations. There's going to be a day in heaven when you're going to see a great multitude, Revelation says, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people, and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. How is that going to be possible? How is that going to be a reality? Well, you remember those three participles, go, baptizing, teaching? That's how it's going to work. And that takes us to number three, our commission. Go, therefore. Can I encourage you to write this in your Bibles? That just means in the right tense. It means having gone. The assumption of Jesus is you're on mission. You're not having to deliberate this. You're not having to debate it. You're not disobedient. It's unthinkable to Jesus that his disciples would not obey him. So his assumption is of you, Christian, and of me, we're already doing this. Having gone, or in the English, go therefore. In other words, the authority and the power of Christ has filled you with courage and confidence and determination that you have gotten your mission job from Jesus, he's going to give you everything you need to do all he's going to ask you to do. So if he tells you to go, then he's going to give you the power to do what he's going to ask you to do. And for most of us, it doesn't mean you have to quit your job and enter seminary or join a mission agency. Some do. Some are going to be called to do that. Some of you might be being called to do that. But most of us, our mission field is our jobs. Now I'm going to ask you, on your job, have you ever made a disciple? And I'm going to ask you this, if, you, if your answer is no, then why would you ever think you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? You're not going to hear that. Because you're not even doing the one mission he's given you to do in the power that he's promised to supply. Have you ever made a disciple on your job, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your family? In other words, as you are already immersed in your careers and in your schools and on your teams and in your neighborhoods, that's where you are to be making disciples. How? Number one, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are going, well, I'm, I don't even have access to a pool. I'm not getting into the Delaware. How am I going to baptize people? Well, let's at least start with this. You ready? Baptism doesn't save anybody. But notice that Jesus views it as part of becoming a disciple. So listen, if you're a Christian and you are refusing to be baptized, there's something not right. Because in the mind of Jesus, it's all one and the same. 
Jesus commands the Christian to be baptized as a response to salvation because baptism was a public identification that I belong to Christ, listen, and his church. See, baptism identifies a person with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, meaning that you're now dead to the power of sin. You're a new creation. You've been given power to live a life that brings glory to God. But in the first century, baptism often brought the reality of martyrdom. Did you know that? To agree to be baptized in A.D. 64 was a death sentence. At least many of the Christians lost their jobs because of it, because they identified with Jesus, and Jesus was upsetting the entire Roman world. They were putting Christians to death. And how would they find out if you're a Christian? They'd find out if you've been baptized. So what's it mean to be a disciple maker who baptizes people? It simply means this. You're walking people into their salvation. And you are immediately helping them find a way to make their faith public through baptism. It means to confirm and to cement to a new believer their identity of being in Christ. It means to help them understand their relationship with God, their new life, because they've passed from life to death, as Jesus said in John 5. That's what it means to baptize new disciples. But then there's teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. See, Jesus taught his disciples the way the Jews had for centuries. He didn't do anything new. I know that sounds shocking, maybe even a little bit heretical, but I'm telling you, Jesus was a typical, supernaturally atypical rabbi. He did it the way rabbis did. When a Jew became a disciple, he would live with the rabbi. He would go through life with the rabbi. He would learn in real life relationships. Discipleship was duplicating the rabbi's life into the disciples. It would help make the disciple think and speak and act like the rabbi. In fact, there's, there's accounts in Judaism of a limping rabbi and all of his disciples following him with the same limp. They even learned how to walk like their rabbi. And the way that Jesus and the Jews made disciples was using every opportunity to teach in the context of relationship. So listen, if you're making a disciple, if you are involved in disciple making, then you're learning to take everything that happens in ordinary life and use it as a teaching opportunity for Jesus. And you're not teaching information, you're teaching for transformation so that we can look what it says, observe all that I have commanded you. So successful was Jesus that even the opponents of the early church said of his disciples, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And look what this says. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. The people that you're pouring your life into, people around them should be saying, hey, you look a little, little, a little bit like Sharon Brooks. You look a little bit like Tim Ackley. You look a little bit like Dave Shepetowski. That's the way that it ought to be, Paul says. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. You're pouring the life of Christ into a person through the vehicle of you. 
We've looked at our commander. We've looked at his command. We've examined our commission. But I think the most exciting part is the fourth one, and that's his commitment. Look what Jesus says. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, a little bit of a recap. Jesus has given us a job. Now he promises to help us do it. In fact, he will be right alongside of us. I mean, if I were to ask, and I'm not for a show of hands, how many of you get a little bit nervous when a preacher says you ought to be making a disciple? I'm guessing a lot of us. Quite frankly, we don't know how to do it because for most of us, it was never done for us. But the church is the blood-bought possession. That means he died for her. It's a blood-bought possession of Jesus. He is personally invested in its success. And he might not bless a building program. Listen, we tried a building program. It didn't work very well years ago. We tried a capital campaign, yielded 330000 The expert said it was going to get to 900000 That didn't work very well either. If we did a church bingo night, I'm not sure God's going to bless that one either. But one thing he definitely will pour out his blessings on is a church committed to making disciples. That's what he promises to do. He will personally partner with that church. How long? Look what it says. To the end of the age. You know, not every Christian has the same gifts or talents or skills, but we all have the same mission. And it's to make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to guard the commands of Jesus. You know, I've shared this before, but I think it's worth sharing again. And it all starts, my story of how I became a Christian starts over 200 years ago with a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball from Chicago. Now, you might be thinking, in the 1800s, a guy in Chicago, how could that be accountable or responsible for me being a Christian? I want to invite you to listen to this story. You ready? Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher of boys. And he was concerned that some of them weren't believers. And I'm going to ask you, are you a believer? Now listen, I'm not asking you if you believe in God. That's not what a believer is. A lot of you are going to tell me yes, but you're not going to be able to pass the following test. Do you believe in having put your trust in Jesus Christ that he alone had to die for you and you submitted your life to him to live his will, not your own. That's what it means to be a believer. And Edward Kimball was concerned. You've got all these kids in Sunday school, all these boys, and I don't think some of them are Christians. So he went and he started making a personal visit to every one of those boys and asked them to come to Jesus Christ. And he went to, he went to a boy in a shoe store. His name was Dwight L. Moody who worked at a shoe store, and he went there and he spoke to Dwight and he gave him the gospel. And he left having felt that he botched the opportunity. However, on that day, D.L. Moody became a believer and God called Moody to become one of the most prominent evangelists in America. He traveled even across the pond, across the Atlantic, to England several times. He went to Liverpool, England, and he preached one day in F.B. Meyer's 
church. Now, Pastor Meyer was an intellectual. And he looked down at Moody's unsophisticated preaching. Moody was not eloquent. He was just raw and real. But eventually, Meyer, this intellectual, was transformed by Moody's preaching, and he soon came to America with Moody to preach. And Meyer preached at a church called Northfield, or rather at a conference called Northfield Bible Conference, and he famously said these words to the crowds. If you are not willing, and I'm wondering if there's some here right now that are going to be here. If you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? Well, a struggling young minister at that conference, by the way, by the name of Wilbur Chapman, was changed by that prayer, and God used Wilbur Chapman to become a powerful traveling evangelist. And under Chapman's mentoring, a professional baseball player who played with the Chicago White Sox at one point, named Billy Sunday, he quit baseball, and he took up preaching, and he began to dynamically lead thousands of men and women and kids to Christ. And he preached in North Carolina one time, and in response to his preaching, there was a group there that started praying for revival, and they invited Mordecai Ham to come preach in a crusade. A young central high school student came to that crusade. He didn't want to. But he was convinced to go, and he thought it would be a joke, and they would leave and go have fun. And he came to that crusade under Mordecai Ham, and it was there in North Carolina at that crusade that Jesus Christ drew Billy Graham to salvation. And it was in Syracuse, New York, decades later at a Billy Graham crusade that my father Robert Ackley came to faith in Christ, and I am so very thankful that a little-known Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball in the 1800s, who was no spiritual mule, but he was somebody who prayed and obeyed our Lord and Savior to go and make disciples. I am so thankful for Kimball. I owe my salvation to his obedience. So what about you? You could very well ask me the same question, and I'm asking it in a mirror for me as well. Are we obeying our Lord and Savior by making disciples of Jesus Christ? One of the ways that we can do this is by getting out in our community. And we have an opportunity coming up in just two weeks called Serve Others Weekend to be able to get out there all over the east end of the Lehigh Valley from the Slate Belt down here to Easton during the middle of Bacon Festival to the Salvation Army up north. Listen, we've got all kinds of opportunities for you to actually get outside the walls of this church and into the communities of desperately needy people to serve them and to show them Jesus Christ. You know, back in 2007, I became the lead pastor here in 2006. We were an ingrown church at that time, meaning that all of our ministries were working out within the walls of our church. We didn't do anything in our community. By God's strength and help and through a lot of prayer, we 
created a, per, a paradigm shift to where we started to get out from the walls of our church into downtown Easton. Riverside ministry that happens every Monday night. Some of you here are blessed by that ministry. Some of you serve at that ministry. It happens every Monday. And that started in April 2007. It's not missed since. But there's an inexorable tendency for every church to go back to your default. It's much easier, you think, to live out your church life within the walls of your church. And you are completely missing the commission that Christ gave us. So we're moving that needle of that compass back outside of the walls of our church. That's why we're creating this Serve Others weekend. Do you know in two weekends we're not having any worship services? None? We've never done that before, ever. We're doing that because we're asking every one of you, even if this is your first time with us, every single person that comes to Cornerstone to get involved on one of the many opportunities to serve our community and show them that it really is true that when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, Proverbs 11.10. The very next verse, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. We want to get out in the city and bring the name of Jesus. And we're asking you to do that with us. The Cornerstone family of churches exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, grow together, and serve others. Pastor Kyle is going to come up right now. He's going to explain how you can sign up for one of those serve opportunities, and there's a lot of them for you to be able to do that. So Kyle, come on up. <laughs> 